Welcome to Luxury Real Estate Talk, where you get expert advice on buying and selling luxury real estate. I'm your host, Rob Jensen. Today on the show, we've got Ben Bellack. Ben has participated in over $200 million worth of real estate transactions, and I'm excited to talk to him. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, let's just jump right into it. How long have you been in the business? Um, I've been licensed now probably um, about seven. Um, I think I'm working on seven years. Got it. And as I like to say, in terms of realtor years, it's like dog years, you know, 12 hours a day, seven <laughs> days a week. <laughs> it's equivalent well, of 30 years. You know, I started off as uh, I found a mentor and I worked with him for about three and a half years. And then, but I've been on my own, you know, to, you know, officially on my own for, you know, now I'm in year four. Perfect. So tell me a little bit more about where you focus and work and what you specialize in. Um, um, I w- work at the agency in Beverly Hills. That is where our headquarters is. Um, for those that haven't heard of the agency, um, we've been around for just over six years now. Our founders are, um, I guess you could call them uh, real estate correspondents in the media now at this point. Um, on the Wall Street Journal Real Trends, which is a list of the top 1,000 every year, there's four groups of 250, and we're the youngest company on the list, and we have the most agents on it. So uh, to give a little bit more background, we sold the Playboy Mansion last year for $100 million, and a, about 30 days later, we sold another $100 million property. So while we do... Love it. Yeah, while we do... Uh, service the uh, the the super high end. I, I believe the average sales volume, at least in 2016. I don't know the 2017 numbers, but the average sales volume for each agent was about 17 million, and I think average transaction was actually about 10% of that. But coincidentally, at 1.7 million. So, still the majority of our transactions are being done at um you know, closer to the entry threshold of buying a house here in Los Angeles. Got it. So obviously, as you know, the point of this show is, you know, we want to give consumers out there some insight as to um, if they're looking to sell or buy, you know, what they should learn to make the most of their experience. So I thought we'd just jump right in and start with the sellers, you know, and what would you like to say or share um, out there with folks that are starting to think about selling, maybe they're just now starting to think about getting their home on the market, maybe they're starting to interview agents, like what's kind of, where do they need to start? Well, I feel like we could do a podcast, we could do multiple podcasts on that alone, but I'll try to summarize. <laughs> um, and, and also, I think people should understand that we're in a very, very hot market uh, in Los Angeles, and, and I don't mean from an economic standpoint or some sort of um, speculative bubble. It's just people want to live here. People want to live in our warm weather. They want to be by, by the water. Generally speaking, the things that happen here and in other hot markets like New York and San Francisco, they tend to dictate an overall market trend nationally, even if you know, the rest of the country falls in line later. So I do think that 
when you start to see changes in these markets where the the homes cost more, we, we start to see them nationwide uh, later on. So with that said, um, I think with the new tax plan, that's going to affect our marketplace where it's a little bit more expensive in certain states like California, New Jersey, and New York to own because uh, we can't, we don't have as much tax shelter as we used to. Also, with interest rates set to go up several times this year, it's going to, uh, it should, in, historically that has softened markets. So for the sellers out there, you know, people are always moving due to life change, whether it's divorce or they're trying to get into a a certain school district, or, or maybe they're downsizing. That's always going to happen. But for those that have been kind of circling the idea of, let's say, trading up, now could be that good time to engage because maybe we're either at or approaching the top of the market. So they can really capitalize on pricing where it is. And then when they go to buy, they can still take advantage of low interest rates. So from a net, net, net perspective... Um, market conditions seem to be uh, in seller's favor, for sure. Got it. So good time to be making a change regardless. Then. Sure. Now, if, if we're talking about interviewing agents, I'm not, I, I won't go through my whole listing presentation, of course, but I do think that it's very important to, to look for specific characteristics in an agent. It's very easy to become a realtor. All you have to do is pass a test, and the test is pretty easy. <laughs> well, you, you do have to take some classes too, but it, it's, it has a very, very low entry threshold. And it's one thing to work with your friend when you're buying a home. It's a little easier. Um, it's also lower stakes. But when someone's going to be representing your biggest asset and you know one of or one of the three biggest sales of, uh, of uh, your, your life, you, you want to work with someone who can um, guarantee you the highest probability of highest number, shortest amount of time. So for me, when I am pitching to sellers, I don't just pitch myself. I pitch the firm. Like what can the firm do? How is the firm different than Caldwell Banker? from Douglas Elliman. How are we different? Uh, I also cover our PR capability and also cover our custom creative and a number of other things. I don't, I don't need to keep rattling them off. But the point is, is that I don't, I, when I pitch, I'm not pitching just me. I pitch the, all of what we do. And I think that that sellers, when they meet with people, whether it's the neighborhood specialist who's been around forever and is out power walking the neighborhood, exercising and door knocking, or even someone who's new and, new and a little hungrier, they should know the complete package of services that the firm's going to provide. Got it. So to sort of turn that question around, what might you say is a mistake people make? You know, I'll say it all the time. There's people in the town that I like. I mean, I'm in Las Vegas, and there are some nice people out there, but not necessarily the great agents. And you can pull things up on a, on a listing and see, you know, 
poor photography shot from an iPhone with the lights turned off, <laughs> sure, um, et cetera, but to try and help, you know, is there a mistake you're seeing sellers make? Are they, are they not asking all the questions? Do they not know what questions to ask? Uh, yeah, so here's, I think, the biggest mistake. Consumers, or not even just sellers, they don't have time to track what sells and what doesn't. But what they do see is when they're driving through their neighborhood, they'll see someone's sign. They always see someone's sign. And oftentimes, agents will take a listing at any price, even if it's in disservice to the seller, or potentially uh, if they were to say the price that they really thought was um, putting the seller's ultimate bottom line at risk, they'll take the listing just because they want the sign up in the neighborhood because it's a public endorsement, and it serves as a billboard. But the truth of the matter is, when you really look at the numbers, the industry, or not the industry, excuse me, the neighborhood specialist may actually not be selling things for a good number at all. The, the listings could be expiring or his, there's a ratio that you can look up, which is the, the uh, sales price to list price. What is their average sales price to list price? Are they listing things at a number and only averaging 90% of that, 80% of that? What's, what's their average days on market? So I think just by putting all this weight on the fact that they keep seeing someone sign, sure, it's, it, it is important I, you take that meeting but that should not be the all-encompassing metric for deciding if someone's the right fit for you or not. Um, I, I, had a, I had a listing once where we, I was called in because I had a lot of success in the neighborhood, but the neighborhood specialist had sold these developers the spec project, and I knew they felt loyal to him, but I really, really wanted the listing. And they, at the end of an hour-long listing presentation that they seemed to love, in my mind, I thought it was mine. I was getting it. And they turned mm -hmm. to me and they said, we're going to go with him. We're going to give it to him for 90 days. And I said, I, I know that's not what you want to do. I can tell, but it's just a loyalty thing, and I can appreciate that. I hope you'll be loyal to me after we do business together. But I pulled up on the MLS, his stats and mine, and I took them out. I didn't want to do it, but I did it because I knew I had nothing left at this point. So I yep, put his yep. stats on the table, and I put my stats on the table. I said, here's his average days on market. Here's my average sales price to list price. This is how many transactions I did. And I was crushing him in every category. Um, ultimately, I thought they had me co-list it with him. Got it. So, um, that was based on loyalty to him, but um, you know I was fighting for it, and I think they they re they respected that. And part of my my agreement to coalesce because I had to give up half my compensation was that I run the show, and I did, and we got a record number. Awesome! Congrats! And that's it's exciting that those sellers were able to put a little bit of maybe some ego or this relationship to the side to look at the facts. Because I I know exactly what you're talking about, and I sort of call it the strategy of if you own the whole forest, you know, occasionally lightning strikes and That's you right. might get lucky. But in the meantime, you know, for that one home they did sell, maybe another eight or nine didn't. And sure. so, you know, you're, whatever list, whatever city or state you're in, you can usually pull up a history of, yeah, what, what are these agents sort of numbers, their stats, how many are expiring, 
hey, did they start on the market at five million and three years later it sold for two and a half? You know, or yeah, how many expires did they leave in its wake? So I That's think right. um, bringing being able to try and be a little more objective and not you know, and I understand you know, especially with luxury real estate, you know, you can get this big luxury piece in the mail, some big glossy mailer just sold, you know, five million, ten million, two million, whatever it is, and can be excited like, oh, you know, we got to call this person. You know, it's once again, it's fair for, like you said, to take that appointment with whoever that was, because clearly they do spend, they do get some sales results and invest in, in marketing. But yet, to try and be a little more, um, a little bit more analytical, not just, hey, what seems cool or who seems hot, but what do the numbers say? Exactly. Yeah. And also, um, I'm very, very proud of the marketing collateral that not only my firm puts across, but also my own take on it. Um, uh, my former mentor used to always say in listing presentations that buyers now buy homes like they buy a boat or an iPad or an Audi. And sellers, sellers always want retail price. Every time I go into a meeting, no matter what their house is valued at, you know, depending on condition or location. They always want the highest price per square that was achieved in the neighborhood, no matter what, even if that was like a new construction house. That's what they want. So I turn to them and say, if you want retail price, you need retail packaging. So, for example, I, like I have – yeah, so there was a video that I made for a home that was uploaded to our YouTube channel. And, it, it, you know, we – like I said, we sold the Playboy Mansion. Stuff like that is going to always get – hits and views. But I this house was four and a half million and it currently has almost two hundred thousand views on our channel. Now that's not necessarily some hugely priced or you know it's not this high profile trophy. I mean things cost four million dollars here. So I would say that many if an agent tells you they do video, which every single realtor owes it to themselves and to their clients to be doing video, I would say, show me the video. And if they show you some virtual tour with cheesy music, this is not an emotionally captivating marketing tool that's going to elicit that feeling where someone's saying, this is where I want to be for the next stage of my life. It doesn't have that aspirational uh, piece to it. So why... How are we going to get that big number after all? We need something that's we, – we need video and photos that are, that are compelling, that make people root for the property despite its negatives that we encounter on site. Um, this is the kind of marketing we want, things that are going to get people to write the big number. I love it. So that saves a little bit into the next piece here where – I'm sure you can, we could talk for hours about all the marketing and everything you do, but let's, let's focus on video. So tell me a little bit more about just sort of what goes into when you choose to produce a video, what do you, you know, where do you like to go with it? How do you like to market it or get it out there? Who's, who's looking at it? How, just explain a little bit more there. Yeah. Okay. So here's how I do video. I have a videographer who I have a really good working shorthand with. And despite the fact that uh, I have co-listing agents often 
or uh, an assistant who understands what I like, I'm there to micromanage the video a little bit. Before we do the day that we shoot video, and, and if we are doing twilight shots too where the house needs to be a glowing box, um, I walk the videographer through the house and I say, this is what we're selling here. And also, this is what we're shooting around. Additionally, maybe we don't need all five bedrooms. Let's just, the hero of the house, the heartbeat of the house is this. I will also in advance give him the music that I want um, in the background. And then he ah. makes his edit around the music. So, Where do you get your inspiration for the music on the particular property? Honestly, it's, it's personal. Sometimes I'll pick a I, – I generally like things that are um, – I like thing, music that's progressive, meaning there's a build, so we can build to something visually. I'll listen to Pandora or Spotify, radio, something like that. And then while I'm just listening while I'm working out or, or in the car – if I hear a song that I think would be really great as a backdrop to a home video, I'll just add it to a playlist called you know, Real Estate Video. And then when it's time, I go back and I look at it. So I, that house that I told you about that has almost 200,000 views, that was like a modern trophy with views where a bachelor would want to have parties at. So the music was really meant to get your heart pumping. Then I sold recently a mid-century compound that's for a very, very specific buyer here in Los Angeles, not, the, not that same buyer of that new construction home. So we had uh, a very uh, – actually a, commercial, a song that's used in commercials all the time, a lot of car commercials here locally in California called California Soul. And, you know, it ha had a little bit more – soul to it and we, we I want the music speaking to who the buyer demographic is too so it's, it's I, so even before all the video we're classifying who we think the buyer is you know I don't want to make the same video for the family in Brentwood that you know that traditional Cape Cod that I do this big view modern that's all glass and steel in the Hollywood Hills and the music is something that I think that person's listening to yeah, I love how you um, – that element, you know, because one of the things um, – there's two things you hit on here. One is what I always tell people, you know, residential is very emotional versus commercial real estate is obviously more analytical and do the numbers work. And so sometimes when you're talking or when I'm talking with potential clients, they might not opt to fix or stage something or whatever, and, and I, I have to – remind them that this is an emotional decision in the most part. And so the fact that you sort of start with the music to really touch on the emotion you're trying to bring is, is pretty neat. And then um, the other thing that I like to kind of say or reference about these videos, how you, you know, were just mentioning, you may not need to include all the bedrooms or every single bathroom is that I like to make the analogy that it's, it's like a trailer, you know, just like for a movie or Star Wars. You know, you're going to show off some sexy scenes, edit it well, put in the music with the goal of to attract the right person to come take a look. That's exactly right. It's meant to tease them and get them excited. We're not, you know, if, if you show anyone, anyone too much of something, they're going to not like something. So we show them our best stuff. We're in, we're out. 
We just want to get in there. I, let me give one more example, okay, because this is, this is actually really it, – it's kind of at least – I don't know if this pertains to everywhere else, but in, in Los Angeles we have a big concern over, you know, permitted square footage versus what is um, – what, you know, when we have the, the floor plan measured, what it actually measures out. A good example is we, sometimes we have these really big basements, sometimes, mm -hmm. but – uh, per our code here, you can't have subterranean square footage included in the in the in the legal square feet. So there's then people start looking at price per square, and then there's questions, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a property right now that I've listed in Beverly Hills. The list price is three eight four nine, three million eight hundred forty nine thousand. The square footage on public record is 2,947. But when we had the house measured total, it was 3,752. Now that included the basement, and that also included this old garage that was uh, converted into a guest house back in the 50s. Someone at some point put a bathroom in there, which is not legal um, per our rules, but if you would have kept the garage, even in Beverly Hills, it's so small because it was from, you know, the house is from 1928, that you could pull a car in, a modern car, you couldn't open the doors. Uh -huh. Now, we know, we know when we list a house that someone who buys this is going to see the value in, those, in that square footage, in that guest house and in the basement. But if we just put it on the market at 2947 the legal amount, we're not going to see a lot of people come out for almost $4 million. Additionally, we had to decide, do we want to list the property as a four-bedroom or a three-bed, because legally it's three bedrooms. So if we, we know that people are looking on Redfin, Trulia, Zillow, agents on the MLS, everyone that's looking for a four-bedroom home, meaning a four, they set up search and auto-notify for a minimum of four bedrooms. So if we put it in at three bedrooms, all those people aren't even going to see us. So then we have to decide, do we want to do that and risk not being seen, or do we list it at four and then disappoint and potentially piss off people when they come out and they say, oh, the main house is in three. So that's those kinds of questions, those kinds of uh, specifically questions that pertain to not just marketing, but actually the positioning of the property are what sellers should ask about too. So I've got to know, what did you, what'd you pick? Three bedrooms so, or four bedrooms? So we chose four because okay. I'd rather have everyone come out that's looking for a four and they go, you know what? We're okay with that, with that guest house out there. We're okay with it. We can make it work. For those that came out and saw it and it didn't work, maybe they know someone that it does work for. So we, we choose that lesser of evil. And same thing with the square footage. And by putting it in at 337.52, it pulls down our price per square. It actually appears that we are priced more competitively. And then, obviously, on-site, in our private remarks, on our marketing collateral, it's all disclosed. It's all there for everyone to see. But when people are looking at those, you know, the big four, I guess, which is bed, bath, bed and bath count, those are the first two, and the interior square footage, and then the lot size, at first take, they're excited. We, we always want to excite and compel our buyer pool. Yep.
Yeah, no, I'm so. with you. And, and it's interesting you bring that up because I, I had a similar situation just today where I walked this house where the, the loft, some square footage somehow wasn't in there. There was an extra bathroom that may not have been permitted, but it was there. So that was my first talk or suggestion is like, we've got to get this sorted out. We've got to get the assessor out, pull their plans, figure out what's going on, see what it's going to take to make this, get this bathroom permitted because yes, most sellers prefer to avoid as much headache as possible. They prefer to just hand the whole thing off and have you or I sell it and move on with their life. But if they can spend a little bit of money and all of a sudden have all this extra square footage in another bathroom, then yeah, I mean, that's, that's money on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's this kind of critical and strategic thinking that shines no matter of experience. You know, everyone's going to tout their customer service. I think everyone can, every seller can ignore that. Uh, I'll tell you there's two reasons. One, what I personally think as good service may be different than what my dad thinks. My dad may think, you know, a certain hotel is the best. I may think another one is the best. It's all subjective. So everyone's, everyone touts the best customer service. I think that's something you can ignore. Also, there's a very famous real estate coach um, who's, who's based here in Los Angeles, and he said that based on his decades and decades of coaching, that sellers don't care about service. They just care that you get the job done. Now, I'm not saying don't, <laughs> don't give the service, but it shouldn't the, – the, the angle for a listing presentation should not be, you know, we're going to answer the call. The, <laughs> that, that's right. Well, it's, yeah, it's like when you see on a business card honesty and integrity. It's like that's, that's the baseline. Everyone's supposed to start from there. You know, so to move, moving on to, let's just say you've got it on the market. Video works great. You got offers. Any tips or advice you can share when it comes time to negotiating a sale? Um, you mean when an offer comes in? Yeah, exactly. So you're on the seller side of things. Offer comes in. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not exactly um, all that exciting price or terms. Um, you have any insight or strategy, so to speak, in general that you can share? I am notorious for using leverage at any juncture. Um, it's the most important thing a seller has. Um, to kind of touch on that, and I'll, I'll throw a little curveball in the mix, is that if m many, many sellers will hire an agent who will say, great, you sign the listing. You sign the listing presentation. We're going to take some pictures. You know, on Thursday we'll be up on the MLS on Friday, and that's that. I think that's very dangerous. What I do here is, and I would encourage. I would encourage any seller in any market to ask their agent to do this first. This is what I do. I say, okay, we've looked at the data. This is what. This is what we think the place should be priced. This is what I think. This is what you think. Let's try for two weeks to get the aspirational number, and let's get a ton of feedback. Let's get feedback from the agents. Let's get feedback from buyers. Who knows? Maybe we leverage the fact that it's exclusive and off-market to get you the, the exclusivity price. Ooh, this way, like you're not testing 
after you have days on market. And now, because everyone is on Zillow, on Redfin, on Truly, I mean, often I have clients call me. I'm out seeing stuff. I'm holding something open, and they, they send me out. Have you seen this yet? I'm like, well, no. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Um, the, the way they look at it is they see, oh, this has been on the market for 15 days. The, uh, it's been on the market for 30 days. There must be something wrong with it. So the moment the seller hits the market, they lose leverage, a lot of it. Me, as an agent, I don't really lose sleep um, about a listing until we go live. My goal is to sell for a big number prior to. Also, the, the, the um, kind of side effect of that is that we start creating buzz in the community. Someone could come out and show the place because they heard out of pocket, and then they go back and they tell their office. Ben's got a great pocket over here. You should check it out. You should go show it. Um, so with that, when it's off market, the seller has all sorts of leverage in, in inspections. They go, you know what? If you don't do X, we're going to market. They have ah. the leverage still. So what I would say is, back to your original question, is that fast forward, we didn't get the aspirational number. We're on the market. It's 15 days in. You should ask the agent to show you in your area what the average sales price to list price is based upon time. So I have a listing presentation tomorrow, and I'm going to show them that in the first 30 days in this neighborhood, it's about 100%. If the home sells in the first 30, they're getting 100% of the list price. Actually, it's a little more. It's like 101%. Once you go from 30 to 90, it drops to like 95%, and then after that, it dips really, really far. So I would say if you're a seller, don't get so hung up on that number. Don't get so emotionally attached to it. Get more attached to what leverage you're giving up by accepting this offer. And that is usually demonstrated in terms. Terms are really what can make or break um, a situation. And if, if the terms aren't right, get focused on those, not over 2,000 or in, in our case, 10, 20, 30. <laughs> Sometimes I tell someone, what's 20 grand if they're going to be closed in 14 days? You move yep. on. So, yeah, we've got a deal right now where we're, we're on an agreement verbally on price but the, the buyer's not giving my seller the terms. They just need some time to move out of the house because they're going to be buying a new one. And, yeah, so it's always price, it's price and terms. So you bring up a good point. It is. Um, I, a, another thing I used to hear when I first started was I heard someone once say to a buyer who was really struggling with the number, they were saying, they were saying, look, we want to get the house for the price that we want and the terms, but let's not forget the get the house part. <laughs> it's the same thing for a seller. You want to sell your house for the price and terms, but let's not forget selling. And the thing is, once, once you lose someone or you lose someone's interest or you, you have those days on market, being in the waiting and hoping business is a recipe for disaster for any seller. One more quick aside, I courted a listing for three years that I met off a door knock when I first started. I was a brave 
this one busy thoroughfare in the Hollywood Hills. I'd like walk in the dark because I knew people were home at dinner time. And I stayed in yeah. touch with him, and he, he finally gives me the listing. And he's a super eccentric screenwriter, and he's been around. He's been in the house for 30 years. And one day, I'm sitting in his house, and after he promised me he was going to price it appropriately, he says to me, "We're going for this." astronomical number and I had courted him for three years we'd already I'd already spent so much time there I was you know I said fine and he sat there and he he gave me this long long story and lesson on who the buyer was and he described this this traveler this artist and you know romance man who who likes certain <laughs> sculptures and and he he doesn't have kids and and he I, I just sat there and I enjoyed it because I knew where it was going and this, uh-huh. I kid you not, it went for like 20 minutes. And once I he had finally you. exhausted himself of this vision of who was going to be, um, uh, you know, taking the baton of stewardship of his house, I said to him, that's amazing. But what if he comes here and he goes, uh, I, I need a little bigger. <laughs> then who's going to buy it? <laughs> who's going to buy it? So... I would say you get, stay objective, respect the data, and remember one day as a seller you're going to end up on a case study of a realtor. Do you want to be the one that was savvy and listened to the data and listened to the market, or do you want to be on the list where they're saying, do you want to be like this you know, seller, Joe Smith, who dug in and was emotionally connected to the number, ignored the data, and chased the market down for a year? Absolutely. Well, cool. I super appreciate your time. Um, obviously, if people want to reach out to you, they have more questions, they want to hire you to help uh, sell their house or buy a house, how, how can they get in touch with you, Ben? Um, well, you can always find me on the agency's website. My email is my first initial, my last name. So it's B-B-E-L-A-C-K at the agency, R-E.com. Got it. And we'll put that in the notes of this podcast as well. And once again, I'm your host, Rob, with the Rob Jensen Real Estate Company in Las Vegas, Nevada, where we specialize in helping buyers and sellers in 42 guard-gated and select-gated communities in Summerlin, Las Vegas, and Henderson. Thanks again, and we'll catch you on the next one.